Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. I'm Tyler Stanley, here with part 9 of our guide to St. Augustine's City of God. In this episode, we'll be discussing books 17 and 18 of City of God. And in these books, Augustine is continuing a line of thought that he started in book 16. And that's where uh, Gerhard discussed in part 8 about how Augustine began tracing through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, really focusing on Genesis, where Augustine wanted to look at every event that happens and trace the city of God, the development of the city of God and the city of man uh, through that narrative. And uh, in this passage, in these books, Augustine wants to continue, and he picks it up with the prophets, which really encompasses everything after the Pentateuch, and he just wants to look at sort of random prophecies that occur in the rest of the Old Testament. And remember what Gerhard discussed last time about how Augustine is trying to um, develop a way of interpreting scripture. As we've discussed from the beginning of our guide to City of God, Augustine sees everything as interconnected. Theology and scripture and uh, ethics are all interwoven um, with this concept of the city of God. He's developing his understanding of what what is humanity and how does it exist in a world with these two very separate uh, worlds colliding. And so he looks through the Old Testament and finds how the city of God develops within uh, the city of humanity by looking at Israel's story. And so interpretation is very important there. And what Augustine wants to do is see as Gerhard um, explained, Augustine wants to hold together these two ways of reading scripture. The literal, which sees every event as an actual historical event. It's uh, a, a true history of the world, of the people of Israel. And on the other hand, he wants to see the spiritual meaning of it, the allegory. So, for instance, Gerhard brought up the, the ark, Noah's ark. Augustine believed that when uh, the author of Genesis wrote down the story of Noah's Ark, the Holy Spirit, who was uh, working through that author, had in mind at that moment Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit had in mind the church, which would come, you know, all those years later. So Augustine sees these both as uh, integral as necessary. And so when he gets to book 17, he brings that up again. You know how Augustine is. He wants to continue to explain and continue and continue and continue. So he brings it up again and he says, look, we can't go too far one way or the other. We can't say that every story is only literal, that it's only history. We also can't say that it's only spiritual. We can't say that everything that happens in Scripture is only a foreshadowing of the cross. We have to see them as real events that affected the real people uh, in Israel's past and in the world's past. So when he picks up the prophets, Augustine says the prophets 
were as interested, if not more interested, in telling the future than they were with telling anything else. Basically, he thinks, you know, 80% of the time that a prophet picks up the pen, it's going to be telling events that happen in the future. Now, would it be the historical, literal future that affects just the people of Israel? Would it be the spiritual future? The Would it be foreshadowing of the church, that is? And Augustine, again, says we can't go too far one way or the other. We have to. We need to read critically and thoughtfully. We need to understand what's going on in the context of each passage and 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 learn, is this about history or is this about uh, the the church or Christ or or the end of the world even? And I'll just be honest with you, interpreting Augustine's understanding of how to interpret scripture is itself more difficult than interpreting scripture. So, Given that, let's look at a few examples of Augustine's threefold interpretation. The literal, the spiritual or allegorical, and then both. On the literal side, we might look at the promise to Abraham that the people of Israel, that uh, Abraham's descendants, the people that would be Israel, would, would conquer and inhabit the land of Canaan. You know, from, from this end to that end, they're, they're going to have this whole land. And Joshua is the one that's going to conquer it. He's going uh, uh, to take this land for the people of God. Well, that doesn't happen under Joshua. Joshua starts the process, but Augustine says it isn't fulfilled. This prophecy, this promise of God isn't fulfilled until we get all the way to David and his son Solomon. Now, Sidebar, even then, they don't even extend to all the regions that uh, God supposedly told Abraham they would get to, but that's another discussion. Augustine says, this was a prophecy, and our way to interpret this is not to see it as a spiritual prophecy, a spiritual, uh, we're not looking for spiritual meaning here, but literal, historical the promise made was to the people of Israel, and it was fulfilled for the historical people of Israel. It was made to Abraham and to Joshua, but fulfilled through David and Solomon. Now, how about the uh, spiritual interpretation or the allegorical interpretation? Well, we can look at uh, the woman Hannah who in uh, the book of Samuel, she is Samuel's mother, and she goes, she's a barren woman, and she goes to uh, the temple to pray, and she says she will give her son to God, um, and the Lord hears her prayer and gives her a son, and she indeed gives her son to God, and he becomes, you know, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Now, when Hannah is praying for God to, uh, to give her a son to overcome her barrenness, she gives this beautiful, poetic prayer, and it reaches a bit beyond her situation. And Augustine brings this up. He says, uh, there's a passage where she, uh, Hannah says, he has made weak the bow of the mighty ones, and the weak have girded themselves with strength. Those who are full of bread have been reduced to want, and the hungry have passed over the earth. Because the barren woman 
has given birth to seven, while she who has many children has become weak. So Augustine asked, had Hannah herself really born seven children, although she was barren? Augustine says this is a key. This is proof that we need to look beyond to see something more going on here. Hannah did not have seven children. So who did? Who had seven children? Or what could she possibly be referring to here? It must be the church. So Augustine says, let the church speak her words. She is representative, symbolic, an allegory of the church. He says, let her, the church, speak the words that she recognizes as spoken prophetically about herself so long ago by the lips of this devout mother, that is Hannah. Quote, my heart is strengthened in the Lord. My horn is exalted in my God. So in this passage, we see Augustine arguing that it could not possibly refer to Hannah herself, to Hannah's situation. It must refer to something spiritual. It must refer to the church. So let's look at a third way, according to Augustine, of reading scripture. Uh, Augustine cites the passage which says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I shall ratify a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be in the terms of the covenant that I drew up for their fathers at the time when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not keep my covenant, and I have abandoned them, says the Lord. Now this is the covenant that I established for the house of Israel after those days. I shall establish it by putting my laws in their minds, and I shall write them on their hearts, and I shall look on them, and I shall become their God, and they will become my people." So Augustine says that the fact that Jerusalem, uh, even in the ancient times, is called the city of God, has a double reference. On the one hand, it refers to the physical, uh, fleshly people of Israel in their center in Jerusalem where the temple resided. That is the city of God, the city that had the house of God physically there. But at the same time, it referred to a, a spiritual city. It was a symbol of the true city of God. And Augustine says that that's what's going on here in this, uh, this prophecy, where there's a commingling of the literal or fleshly with the allegorical or uh, spiritual. He says that this, this new covenant is not, not simply ratified in the physical people of Israel, though it is, it's also ratified in the spiritual people of Israel. So that said, Augustine goes through a lot of examples and gives examples of how he interprets various passages. He goes through various narratives through the what he calls the prophetic books. All right, moving on to book 18. This is when Augustine continues the same line of thought but he's going to set his Bible aside for a second, kind of, and he's going to look at the history of the world, not the history of Israel, to see the trajectory of the city of God as it relates to everything that's going on other than Israel. And it's really interesting to see how he, he looks at the development of uh, particularly ancient Rome, and he looks through a lot of the mythology and... Uh, uh, legends that are told about the foundation and and burgeoning of uh, of ancient Rome, 
and he sees God working there. He sees God working in all of these uh, cultures that were existing at the same time as Israel. And one fun bit in particular is the Erythrian Sibyl and her supposed prophecies of Christ. Now, a Sibyl is like an oracle, um, a, a, a prophet in the pagan culture. People would go to these oracles and ask, you know, uh, what kind of, you know, what's the gender of my baby going to be? Everything from that to, uh, are we going to win this war? So this uh, Sibyl gives her prophecy, and through divine providence, the first letters of every line of this prophecy spell out, Jesus Christos Theu Vios Soter, which in Greek means Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. Now, according to Augustine's understanding of the event of this prophecy, it occurred at the same time as either Romulus, who is the mythological founder of Rome, or during the Trojan War. So all those thousands of years ago, this pagan prophetess was prophesying Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Augustine takes this to say, not only that, you know, the Holy Spirit spoke this miraculous word through this pagan prophetess, he says she is apparently counted among those who are part of the city of God. So how does a pagan person, much less a pagan prophet, come to be part of the city of God to confess Jesus Christ so long before Jesus Christ even would come? Now, later on in book 18, he'll explain. He says, There are those among other nations who lived by God's standards and were pleasing to God and who belong to the spiritual Jerusalem. But he says it must not be believed that this was granted to anyone unless he had received a divine revelation of the one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ whose future coming in a material body was foreannounced to the saints of antiquity. So, in other words, a person in a, a pagan culture long before Christ doesn't become a member of the city of God just because they acted right or because they were good people. They could only become members of the city of God if they received a revelation specifically about Jesus Christ as the Savior. Now, as a 21st century American, I am deeply, deeply skeptical that a Sibylline oracle and during the era of the Trojan War spoke about Jesus Christ being the Savior and Son of God. But we can still learn from Augustine here. Uh, we can still see his understanding of how God works in the wider world. And that's the whole point of, of these uh, books that we've been reading, 16 through 18, of how Augustine is going through the course of history, through Israel's history and the rest of the world's history, which for him is just Western history. Augustine sees the commingling of the city of God and the city of earth. It's even in his interpretation of scripture and his interpretation of world events 
this commingling of fleshly and spiritual, everything is covered in this uh, way of seeing the world. His lens, one eye is the city of God, one eye is the city of the world, and everything is colored through that understanding. And Augustine sees God working outside of just what we see in Scripture. Augustine believes that people in pagan cultures, people completely outside of the reach of the physical nation of Israel, were hearing and confessing Christ as Lord. So throughout this uh, book 18, Augustine does exactly what he did in books 16 and 17. He goes through uh, events of history and looks at them allegorically, looks at them literally, and looks at the ways in which these events and uh, writings uh, display the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And in his conclusion of book 18, he says that what he has done in these books is to show the development in this mortal condition of the two cities, the earthly and the heavenly, which are mingled together from the beginning to the end of their history. He says these Cities both alike enjoy the good things, or are afflicted with the adversities of this temporal state, of, of mortality. But he says, but they have a different faith, they have a different expectation, a different love, until they're separated by the final judgment, and when they each receive their own end. And the ends of these two cities is the subject of the next discussion. Now let's think about this a little bit more practically. We see the city of God and the city of humanity both existing at the same time, in the same realm even. And think about Anabaptists, um, like the Amish or Mennonites, um, people within that stream of thought. Um, now, some are more uh, secluded, such as uh, Amish communities, where they completely separate themselves from the world, from modern technology. And more progressive Mennonite circles, they'll be, uh, you know, pretty involved in uh, the modern world. But the central idea that, that kind of forms these communities, uh, that drives them, is the idea that the city of God... Is, is totally separate from the city of the world. You know, we're in the world and not of it. And so that means we completely embody um, and, and act as the city of God here and now. That's why they're, for instance, pacifist. In the city of God, we don't harm one another. We don't shed blood. That's what the world does. That's what... Uh, the fallenness of the world leads us to do that, and as regenerated believers who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, we don't have to do that anymore. So we don't shed the blood of others. Now, Augustine sees these two as commingled. The city of God and the city of man are commingled, and so separating them is much more difficult. Augustine talks about how even within the church, there are um, unbelievers and people who are of the world. Augustine even says in, in the books that we just talked through, he speaks of heresy and how the church needs heresy within it. 
Heresy helps us to distinguish the truth from the lie. It helps us to see the ways in which, uh, you know, Satan tries to manipulate us. And so he sees these things as commingled to the extent that there is a way for the city of God to wage war, uh, to shed blood, to take another person's life. He sees that as a necessary part of the city of God existing within the city of man. And so this is a way that the the debate over how how does God interact with the world, what does it mean for the church to exist within the world, is incredibly important and incredibly practical. So Augustine is, you know, one of the first and, and is still probably the best guide to helping us understand how to think through the implications of living in a world where the city of man and the city of God meet. Are they commingled? Are they fighting against each other? Those are debates that we can still work through, but Augustine has given us a foundation and language to use when we talk about this. He's he's given us a pretty good starting point. So whether you agree with Augustine that these things are as commingled as they are, or whether you're more on the Anabaptist end, where you see these as totally separate and uh, impossible to mix. Uh, I think Augustine is probably um, our best guide to this discussion. And in the next section, we will discuss the end, the ultimate goal and uh, summation of these two cities. So until then, best of luck as you try to make your way through this incredibly dense book. Or you can just listen to our guide and you won't have to read it.